Well, Paul told us, God told us in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 through 17, that God wants you and I to live as Jesus followers who are wise. And the wisest step that you and I can take, according to this passage, is to seek to understand what God's will is for our lives. So out of that, we have put together a question that we are hoping will bring clarity to you and I to help us to make God-honoring, God-glorifying decisions and choices in our lives. And here's the question. In light of my past experiences, in light of my current circumstances, and in light of my future hopes and dreams, man, what's the wise thing to do? What is the wise thing to do? The last couple weeks, we've been exploring that question together, right? If you haven't been here, if you've missed any of them, I highly encourage you to listen or watch online so you can get the fullness of what we've been talking about. But one of the things we've discovered is that there is incredible wisdom when we listen to God's counsel, to God's voice. He wants to speak to us. He wants to speak into our lives. So when we listen to God, and the clearest way that He speaks to us is through His Word. In fact... If you ask the question that we've been asking through this series, if you ask that question without seeking God's counsel through His Word, it is more than likely that when you land at a, on a decision, a conclusion, or whatever the case may be, it is more than likely you will land on a human, you know, if you want to use some Bible terms, fleshly wisdom rather than God's wisdom. So listen to God's Word. And then God will also use, we've discovered, he'll use the voices of other good and godly people who will help us make wise choices. Well, we discovered last week that listening or hearing God's wisdom or counsel, that's, that's part of the equation. The next step is to act upon it, to do what it says. In other words, the way to make wise decisions in your life and my life, what we talked about is that we act upon it by submitting to God, submitting all of our life, all of our decisions, all of our choices to God, or as we say here at LifePoint all the time, say yes to God. Say yes to God even if we don't yet know the outcome. Even if we don't yet know the what the results of that decision will be. And the Bible describes that, that type of living as walking in the fear of the Lord. The Bible talks about that as, as having faith in the Lord. What's the wise thing to do? So we've said, hey, pick a chair. Remember that? We said pick a chair. You want to sit in the seat of the simple, the fool, the mocker, or the wise person? We've said pick a voice. Pick a voice. Do we want to subje su subject ourselves to our subjective opinion, or do we want to pick God's voice in our life? And then last week we said pick a posture. Pick a posture. It's my life. I'm in charge. That's my posture I take, kind of chest out. Or humble submission. This week, it's time to pick a mission. Pick a mission. Dr. E. Stanley Jones, he was a famous Methodist missionary, author, and evangelist. He was once asked to name the number one problem of the church. Now, let your brain just scan that real quick. If someone came up to you and you needed to give a quick answer, what's the number one problem of the church? He quickly replied, so there, he didn't even have to think about it. He already knew for him. The number one problem of the church, he said, was irrelevance. Very interesting. Irrelevance. He went on to say this, that three-fourths of the opposition to the church stems from disappointment. 
We promise to make men different, but the promise goes largely unfulfilled. The number one problem of the church is irrelevance. You see, you know what Dr. Jones was saying? He was saying that the church has lost or doesn't have influence in our community. The church doesn't have influence, and there's many reasons why, but I think one stands above the rest. And I'd like you to turn there now to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. The church has lost, or the church doesn't have influence, because Christians, you and I, Jesus followers, we have not prioritized the words, the charge, the commands of God. Maybe another way to say it is, is we have minimized the responsibility that God has placed upon our lives. I want us to see Jesus' words regarding this. Matthew chapter 5, we're going to pick up in verse 13. Matthew 5, verse 13, he says this. You are the, what's the word? You are the what? Salt of the earth. But if salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. Verse 14, you are the what? You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way. Let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Now, I want you to think about for a moment the crowd that Jesus is talking to right now when he says this. What's our context? Jesus is not speaking to world leaders right now. Jesus is not speaking even before Congress or even a local assembly at City Hall. Jesus is not speaking to a bunch of high-capacity overachievers. He isn't speaking to leaders. He's speaking to a crowd sitting on a hillside in in northern Israel, in Galilee. This was a group of common people who had no high ambitions or positions. In fact, they were under occupation by the Romans. They couldn't make their own laws. They couldn't plan their own futures. They couldn't determine their own destiny. And Jesus says to them, you're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. I want you to go out and make a difference in society. I want you to influence society. I want you to be relevant in the culture. Edward Gibbon's seven-volume work, The Decline and the Fall of the Roman Empire, and also the historian Theodoret, they both spoke of a humble little monk named Telemachus. And Telemachus lived in the farming regions of Asia. Now, there's different accounts of the story. I'll share with you one of the accounts of the story, or one version of the story, and it goes something like this. Telemachus, he was living in the farming regions of Asia. He had no great uh, ambitions in life. He loved his little garden, and he tilled it through the different changing seasons that would come. But then one day in the late 300s, he felt this sense of urgency. He felt God really speaking to him and God giving him a direction in his life. And he didn't know why, but he felt like God, he felt this impression from God like he wanted him to go to Rome, which was, of course, the heart and soul of the empire. His feelings were so strong, they actually frightened him. But he decided to say what to God? What's our word? Say yes to God. He humbly submitted to this call, and 
He went. He prayed along the way for God's wisdom and God's direction, not even sure why he was going to Rome. He gets to Rome. He finds himself at the great Roman Colosseum. And once inside, what he saw absolutely shocked him. He had never seen a gladiator contest before. His heart was sickened. There in the, in the, in the arena, men were hacking at one another with, with swords and clubs. The crowds would roar at the sight of the blood and, and urged on their favorites to kill the other person. Telemachus couldn't stand it as he watched this. He knew it was wrong. He knew this wasn't the way of God, that this isn't how people were meant to live. This isn't even how people were meant to die. So little, tiny, humble Telemachus worked his way through the crowds, down to the wall, down, to the wall, down by the arena. And as loud as he could, took a deep breath and he said, in the name of Christ, stop. Not a lot of people heard him. So he crawled up onto the wall. And Telemachus shouted once again, In the name of Christ, stop! This time more people heard him. But those who heard him, they simply laughed at him. But Telemachus wasn't to be ignored. He jumped into the arena, began to run towards the gladiators, and as he did that, he shouted out, In the name of Christ, Stop! The crowds laughed at this silly little man. They, threw stone, they started throwing stones at him. Telemachus, however, found himself on a mission. He threw himself between the two gladiators. He stood between them and looked at them both, put his hands up and said, in the name of Christ, stop! Those two gladiators looked down at the little man, taking their swords, and they both began to cut at him, hacking him from, you know, shoulder to stomach. He fell onto the, stand, onto the sandy ground. Blood running, from his, or blood running from his body, you know, he's dying at this moment. One last time, as he was feeling the life drain from him, the crowds now weren't, la- now weren't laughing. It was completely silent. And in this moment, nobody moved. And Telemachus' final words rang out in the memories of all who were there as he said, in the name of Christ, stop. It was just like this. And one by one, the people started to leave the Colosseum. Not many at first, but eventually the crowds got up. Everybody began to pour out of the Colosseum in growing numbers. Historian Theodoret reported that the gladiator contests were never held again after that day. All because of the witness. All because of the testimony of a single Christian who was focused on God's mission that He gave to you and I to be salt and to be light. You see, every single one of us here this morning have been called by God to God's mission to make an impact, to make a difference, to leverage our influence that God has given us. 
Now, what I want to do through the rest of our time together today is I want to dig a little deeper into what this actually means. And I want to look deeper into the passage. And, and specifically, the first part of the passage, it can actually be a little confusing. So let's relook at it together. Look at verse 13 again. Matthew chapter 5, it says this. You are the what? You are the? You are the salt of the earth. But if salt loses its saltiness, how can it may be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. Of course, my question is, can salt really become unsalty? Like, that was my, that's my first thought. So I, I looked it up and kind of, you know, looked around. I actually spent way too much time this, reading, this week reading about salt, and I'm not going to bore you all with it. So, but what I can tell you this, and, and, and I guess you'll have to take my word for it with my research, but if we have any chemistry teachers here, I know we have a lot of teachers here, but any chemistry teacher will tell you that, you know, that can't really happen. Sodium chloride is one of the most stable compounds in the entire universe. It doesn't change. It doesn't lose its character. And if you want to go research, search it like I did. It's actually pretty fascinating how it works. But obviously Jesus said this and so it must have meant something to the people back then. He wasn't teaching, you know, 21st century people what we understand about salt and molecules and all that kind of stuff. So what was his context? What would the people have understood when he said if salt loses its saltiness? What would they have understood? Well, much of the salt in Israel came from around the area of the Dead Sea. And, and the Dead Sea was about uh, 1,388 feet below sea level. It's the lowest land area in all the world. Water starts uh, in the tributaries north of the Sea of Galilee. It flows into the Sea of Galilee. And then out of the Sea of Galilee, it flows into the Jordan River. The water flows down the state of Israel and ends up in the Dead Sea. That's the end of the line for the water. There are no outlets the hot desert sun then evaporates the water. And, and that leaves behind a chunky white powder that is made up of a combination of salts, gypsum, and, and, and minerals. That's what's left. You can look at a few different pictures of, of what that looks like in Israel. If you were to go to the Dead Sea, you could see these kind of chunks of salt that are there. Pretty, pretty fascinating. Now, this powder, this red, this, these chunks, if you will, they contain enough salt to season meat or to add flavor to soup or other foods, which is why the people of Israel use these salts in, in, an in a tremendous way in trade. And they would use it in their own lives in cooking. And when they would scoop up, so they would go, they would scoop up the salt, which is mixed with the, with the minerals, and because it's not pure sodium chloride, it is possible under certain conditions when there is a little dampness in the air, it would be possible for the salts in that mixture of minerals, it would be possible for the salt to be dissolved first or to be leached away. And the reason is, is because it's more soluble than minerals that were mixed with it. There's your, there's your history lesson, your chemistry lesson, we're done now. Steve's like, yeah, man, I like that. Now, what's very interesting, this dissolving that would happen with the salts in this, you may not notice it by looking at it. So you would scoop it, you would have it. You would think you, you know, there's enough salt in this to you know, preserve and to add flavor and to do what it needs to do. It looks the same, whether the salt is present or not. And guess when you figured out if there was any salt? When you tasted it, 
when you put it on your food. And if there was little to no salt, it was repulsive. Which, of course, the only thing to do now at this point with your whole batch of salt that you have, that you've been using, what's the only logical conclusion to do with that salt now? What do you do with it? You throw it out. It's useless. It's no good. I want you to think about this with me for a moment. On the surface, by appearance, you can't tell if a person is a Christian by looking at them, correct? I mean, look around. You can't actually tell if somebody, if you just look at a person, you can't, oh, that's a Christian. You, You can't make that distinction. What did Jesus say? How do you recognize somebody? Does anybody know what he said? He said, you can recognize somebody by their summertime, so you might be thinking about this a lot. You can recognize them by their what? By their fruit. You can recognize somebody by their fruit. Using Jesus' metaphor of salt, what's one of the easiest ways that I can recognize a believer? Jesus is saying, does a believer add flavor? Do they add flavor? Do they add flavor to a conversation? Do they add flavor to a life? Do they add flavor to a ministry? Do they add flavor to a company, to a team, to a relationship? Do they season those relationships, those environments, those conversations. And that's what the Bible talks about when it, th- when it talks about salt. Colossians chapter 4, verse 6 says, Let your conversations be always full of grace, seasoned with what? Seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29 says, Do not let any unwholesome talk. Another translation says, do not let any foul talk or abusive talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs. Another translation says, only what is helpful as it fits the occasion, that it may benefit those who listen. Listen, church, what you say matters. What comes out of your mouth matters. If if we are full of grace, if we are helpful and good by what we communicate, by what we say, by how we deliver it, if we build others up, if we encourage others, if we are graceful in our communication, if we are helpful to others, if we add benefit to their life, if we add value to their life, and it fits the occasion... You are being the salt of the earth, Jesus says. And this matters to Jesus. Because he said, you are. Not, he didn't say, I hope you will be. It would be really cool, you know, I know you're my follower. Here's one of the things I'd love for you to consider. That's not what he says, does he? He says, you are the salt of the earth. Also in the ancient world, another function of salt was to act as a preservative. It would keep, you know, something from spoiling. I want you to think about that. That's what you and I do as believers in this world. We act like a preservative of God's values. A preservative of God's holiness in this world. Just imagine what our world would be like with no churches, with no Christian universities, no church-supported hospitals, no Christian you know, social action groups, no Christian organizations ministering across the world. Imagine what our world would be like. Actually, you don't have to imagine it. Just go find out what the world was like over 2,000 years ago. That's exactly what it would be like. You're the salt. 
of the earth. Preserving God's values, upholding God's holiness to this world. Another way to say it, we hold evil at bay. Finally, salt not only adds flavor and seasons and preserves, salt has another use. This is a very interesting one. You may or may not be aware of this one. Salt was used to confirm agreements, to seal treaties, and to establish covenants. And this is actually where this, what Jesus is saying, these, you've maybe heard of these before, but this one really brings it home. In biblical times, men would carry around pouches that had salt in them. Soldiers were actually paid in salt. It was a valuable commodity. And when a covenant was made between two people, they would take a, a pinch of salt from their, you know, from their pouch, and they would each do it, and they would mingle, intermingle those pinches of salt together. And that exchange of salt was a covenant. That the two now, you're bound now to the other person. You, can't, you can no longer pull out your little bits of salt grains from that pile. You're now, you're, not, you know, you're now glued together with this other person. It meant that the agreement was binding. It meant you could not go back on your word. It was this irrevocable covenant that Abijah, who was the king of Judah... It's what he relied on when he went to war with uh, Jeroboam, who was the king of Israel. And maybe you know some of the Old Testament history. You had the northern evil kingdom of Israel and the southern, you know, more godly kingdom, at least more so than the northern kingdom of Judah. And Abijah, he was a godly king, and he was going to war with, with, with Jeroboam. But the problem was Jeroboam had 800,000 soldiers, and Abijah only had 400,000 soldiers. And since technology was kind of all the same, you know, they're all using clubs and sticks and arrows, you know, there's no, nobody has a defining advantage. You know what the defining advantage was? An extra, in numbers, an extra 400,000 people comes in handy, right? And so Abijah is thinking about this, and, and, and Jeroboam, you know, he's thinking, okay, this, we got this in the bag. But Abijah warns and reminds Jeroboam and all the people in 2 Chronicles chapter 13, verse 5, he reminds them that David, King David, their, you know, their great, 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 great grandfather, they had made a he had made a covenant with God, a covenant, you ready for this? A covenant of salt. And he had made that covenant of salt that says in 2 Chronicles, David and God, and Abijah had been faithful to that. He had followed that covenant. He had not broken his word. He was glued together with God on that covenant and being godly. But Jeroboam and the people of the north of Israel, they had broken the covenant. Therefore, he was reminding Jeroboam and all the people, guess whose side God's on in this little battle we're about to go in? Really cool story. Read it sometime on your own. Check out the rest of it. But the idea is the covenant of salt came and it was binding. And, and, and Abijah knew God would honor the covenant. It was that big of a deal. You can go throughout scriptures. There's lots of little examples. I'll just give you one more. Ezra chapter 4 verse 14. Actually, the enemies of the Jews... So it wasn't just a Jewish thing. The enemies of the Jews, they wrote a, they wrote a letter to the king, uh, king Artaxerxes of Persia. And they, and they told him, hey, we want you to remember that we're going to be your servants forever and that we've eaten salt from your palace. In other words, we're connected. We have that. We're, we're together with you. One uh, uh, translation, when it talks about eating salt from your, ta uh, your palace, it actually uses the term that we're under obligation 
to the palace. That's what the imagery is. You're under obligation to follow, to fulfill the covenant. So, imagine the people listening to Jesus. Imagine now their context with this whole issue and idea of salt. And you hear Jesus say, you are the salt of the earth. These are people, by the way, who have been following Jesus. They were followers of Jesus. They would consider themselves, you know, disciples, if you will, of Jesus. And Jesus, by him saying, you are the salt of the earth, he is saying, you have a covenant with God as a God follower, as a Jesus follower. And that covenant binds you and I to him. And because you and I have the covenant with God and we're bound to Him, you know what that means? It means that you and I are bound to Him and who He is and we represent Him. That's why Jesus is using this language. You're the salt of the earth. It's a brilliant thought to say this. And, and you are a person, you are bound by covenant to represent God's interests, to represent God's mission, God's plans. You are the essence of God's relationship with the world around you. You are the extension of God's personality to the world. You are the salt of the earth. You are the extension of who God is and his love and his characteristics and his personalities to that person you work with every single day, to that person you see at the games, to your family members, to church members, to everybody you come in contact with, you, by covenant, an agreement of salt. You're the salt of the earth. That's what we signed up for when we said yes to Jesus. You're an extension of his personality and his mission. When Dr. Jones said the number one problem is irrelevance, you know what he was saying? He was saying, you and I, we're not fulfilling our covenant with God. He was saying we're not using our influence as an extension of God's personality in our society. We have a particular function to perform here on earth. We are salt. And so I just ask you, are you living up to the contract of salt that you entered into with God? Are you representing God to this world? Or are you neglecting his call to you, his mission to you? If we fail to live out this function, this mission, what did Jesus tell us? Look at verse 13. You're no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. I love how the message translation translates this passage, and then we'll move on to the next verse. It just says this. Let me tell you why you're here. You are here to be salt seasoning that brings out the God flavors of this earth. If you lose your saltiness, how will people taste godliness? exactly what we're talking about you've lost your youth usefulness and you'll end up in the garbage you've been called by god to make a difference to make an impact to leverage your influence to be the salt of the earth next look at verse 14 notice what jesus said matthew 5 verse 14 and let's say it together you are the what you are the you are the light of the world a town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Jesus here, he, as you put salt and light together and what they're all talking about, Jesus, you know what he's talking about? He's talking about your public life as a believer. Okay, he's not talking about your private inward life. He's talking about your public life being seen by others as an example of the power, the love, and the grace of God. You know what this means? Jesus is telling you and I, we don't have the option to hide in a corner. Oh, but I'm an introvert. 
Oh, but, but I'm uncomfortable being around people. Oh, I, I lack confidence. I, you know, I would rather keep to myself and just have a very few people that I'm connected to. I just got to tell you, God doesn't give us that option. Nowhere in Scripture does He give us an exception for our personality. He doesn't do that. He's called all of us to maximize our influence, to leverage our influence, no matter our personality, no matter our fears. Now, obviously, it'll look different for each one of us based on who we are and what our personality is, but God wants us to use it and to leverage it. Look how the verse continues. Verse 15, Matthew 5. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. Just like salt, light is in danger of being useless. A hidden light, okay, you could say it's still light, but it's useless. That's why people don't light a lamp and and cover it or put it under a bowl. They put it out so it will light up a room. Verse 16, in the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. He's saying don't, don't hide your light. Let your light shine. Let your life be focused on God's mission. And do you look at, the, look at that passage? Please don't miss this. Why, why, why? Why is it that God is so passionate about us focusing on His mission? Look at the second part of that verse. It says the purpose of letting our light shine and demonstrating good works is why. It's not to bring attention to ourselves. It's not to praise ourselves. It's to bring glory to God. William Carey was a pastor of a small congregation in England. He believed the scriptures were clear to be salt and to be light, to go to those who are far from God. One time he was uh, preaching about evangelism and and missions, and uh, an older pastor came up to him. Carey was a young man, and so an older pastor came up to him, and he listened, and he was being respectful, and this older pastor said this, when God pleases to convert the heathen, He will do it without your aid or mine. Can you imagine if that was my advice to young preachers? Hey, God will handle it without you. That troubled Carrie. He began to gather facts and statistics and Bible commands and common sense arguments, and he began to demolish the position of people like this older pastor and many others who said the church should do nothing. The result of all his research was his famous book called An Inquiry into the Obligations of Christians to Use Means for the Conversion of the Heathen. They had long titles back then, you know. (laughs) But then on May 31st, 1792, he preached, uh, as a result of all that, he preached a sermon called Expect Great Things from God, Attempt Great Things for God. His passage moved the congregation, but it moved his own soul even more. So the next year, he set sail for India. What he did there was astounding. He began just doing, he just began to pour himself into the country, began a manufacturing plant that employed jobless workers. He translated the scriptures to countless languages in India. He set up shops to print the scriptures. He established schools for all ages. He helped people find a better place in society. He provided medical assistance for the disease, the troubled, and the ailing. It was nothing short of a miracle for the people of India. 
His legacy was the worldwide missionary movement of the 19th century. He was the one who inspired it all and the great men and women who came after him. William Carey chose God's mission. He chose to be salt and light. Why? So that others would see God's good deeds or his good deeds. They would see God and that they would turn their hearts to God, that they would glorify God. Listen, you can make a difference in this world as salt and as light. The message translation of this passage we've just studied says it this way. Here's another way to put it. You're here to be light, bringing out God colors in the world. God is not a secret to be kept. We're going public with this, as public as a city on a hill. If I make you light bearers, you don't think I'm going to hide you under a bucket, do you? I'm putting you on a light stand. And now that I've put you there on a hilltop, on a light stand, shine. Keep open house. Be generous with your lives. By opening up to others, you'll prompt people to open up with God. This generous Father in heaven. Do you see what he's saying there? That you and I, as Ephesians 5, 8 says, says you are light, you, but now you are light in the world. Live as children of light. You and I, the primary call of the church is to be the light of the world, to spread the message, God's message of love, of grace, of salvation through God's Son, Jesus Christ. Fellowship and hanging out with other believers, that's good and it's great and it's wonderful and it's rich and it's exciting, but our mission, our call is to be light and to be salt to this world. So what's the message today? In light of this series we're in, what's the message it's very simple. What are the wise steps? What are the wise choices? What are the wise decisions for me to make in my life to maximize my impact and my influence for God? What are the wise choices, the wise decisions to maximize my influence to be salt and to be light. Colossians 4, 5 said it this way, be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Church, Jesus gave you and I a great responsibility. But you gotta choose. You gotta pick a mission. And you can choose your own mission, your way, your agenda, your path, your desire, your vision, your mission for yourself, or you can choose God's mission. The greatest tragedy is that we, you and me, is that the, the greatest tragedy is the church would be irrelevant because of the mission we choose. So my hope and my prayer is that you would be wise and you would choose God's mission for you to represent him being salt and light to a dark world. In light of my past situations, in light of my current circumstances, in light of my future hopes and dreams, what is the wise thing for me to do to maximize my influence as salt and light? And as we close this morning, I want to tell you one way to answer that question. What's the wise thing to do? I close this morning by giving you one way to be wise in maximizing your influence. And the, the wise thing to do is to sharpen that influence, to get better, to get smarter, with your influence, to get equipped. And I'm going to pray, and we're in a moment, and we're going to take up our offering. 
And we're going to share with you a little video, and we'll talk for a few moments before we get out of here about one of those wise ways to sharpen your influence, something that we're doing together and you have an opportunity to be a part of. That would be a wise, wise step. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed, I want to invite you right now. The ushers are going to get ready to take the offering. I'm going to invite you right now to say, Lord God, help me to be wise. To make wise decisions in maximizing my impact and influence on those around me. God, help me to be salt and to be light. Heavenly Father, hear our prayers. We don't want to be irrelevant. God, we don't want to be good for nothing and thrown out. We want to join you and meet you where you're at and meet you with your mission and be a part of it. And to maximize the influence we have, no matter how small, no matter how great, but to maximize it for you as salt and as light. Help us, God, to do the wise thing. To be smart with our influence. We take up our Offering God as people come to give you, as they come to worship you through giving right now, being wise, because this is what you've asked us to do. Use this for your glory and for your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.